Welcome to Round Rock Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening. If you're in the Austin area, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday at 8.30 or 10 a.m. Or you can check us out and watch online at roundrockchurch.us. May God bless you as you seek Him, and may He use this message to give you exactly what you need. Good morning. My name is Sierra Santoyo. And if you'd like to follow along with me, I'll be reading from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. NBC at church. I want to know from you, how long is too long? All right, so here's how this is going to work. In a moment, I'm going to give you a scenario up on the screen, okay? And you're going to vote by saying, I can hang on and I will do it for this long, okay? So you're going to vote by being able to raise your hand. If you're willing to wait this long, you keep your hand up. If you hear it and you're like, nope, I'm not willing to wait any longer, you put your hand down, okay? That's going to be the scenario. Do we feel ready to go? The only way you fail at this is if you don't participate in it, okay? All right, we ready to go? All right, so everyone's hand going up. You ready? You ready? You ready? All right, here we go. Scenario number one. Maybe. All right. How long will you wait for a text message before sending another message? Okay. This is what we would call a double text. Okay. All right. How long will you wait? Will you wait minutes? Mm-hmm. Will you wait hours? Just lost a couple. Okay. A day. Mm, we're patient compared to first service. Okay. And days. Okay, so you will hang on for a long time. All right, hands back up, scenario number two. How long will you wait in a drive-through line? Yep, yep. Is the spirit still cultivating patience? We don't know. All right, here we go. Two cars, will you stay in that line? You will, absolutely. Someone, yeah. All right, five cars, will you stay in that line? Mm, yeah, we're not, not as much now. Seven cars. Yeah, yeah, we're done at seven cars. Okay, Chick-fil-A lunch hour, will you go back? That is shocking. People will go back hands up just for Chick-fil-A. Okay, that is uh, what we call insanity. All right, here we go. Here is situation number three, all hands up. I appreciate the booth. Thank you for your participation. All right, here we go. How long will you wait for a package? Oh, oh, why did he do this? Why did he do this? Two days. Okay, this is Amazon Prime. Surely you can. Surely you can. All right, here we go. Four days. Are you just going to go to the store? No, you're going to wait. Okay, all right. Seven days. That's a full week. Oh, wow. Okay, this is strong. Okay, I'll wait as long because I've already forgotten that package was there. 
You ever done that before where you order something and then way later you're like, what even is this? Oh, I needed this. Okay, all right, here we go. Last one. We ready? Hands back up for it. All right, I'm watching you, John K. Here we go. All right. How long will you wait for this sermon to end? <laughs> Gentle. Okay. 20 minutes. That, that's a lie. I've watched some of you. Okay. You do not hang with me for 20 minutes. Some of you are like, ooh, I am tired. All right. 30 minutes. What? <laughs> I hear you. Okay. I already stopped listening. That one's more accurate for some of you than you even know. Okay, I feel it. I, I hear, I see you. I see you as I preach. I want to talk about one more question this morning. And it is the question that you are answering already with your life, whether you know it or not. And it's simply this question. How long are you willing to wait for God? So a couple of weeks ago, we started this series called First Importance. And what we've been doing is highlighting the news of Easter that we claim Easter is not just a day. It is a season for the church. It is the day where we remember that Jesus was alive, that Jesus died, and that Jesus rose from the dead. And because of that news, because of that reality, you receive some promises of God if you do life with Jesus. On Easter Sunday, we talked about what's it look like to get a preview of the hope that's coming. Last week, we talked about testimony. And this week, I want to talk about how you can have peace in the midst of your doubt. There was a French writer by the name of Voltaire who once said that doubt is one of the most unpleasant conditions of humanity that just lingers. Our questions, our hesitancies, and our wonderings about God can leave us in an unpleasant place. Can I get an amen, church? A couple people? Okay, all right. When we're wondering about God's nature, when we're wondering about God's existence, when we're wondering about why God does certain things or doesn't do certain things, this is when we find ourselves in doubt. I remember... My first year of ministry, I was extremely naive, and I felt this reality for sure. Uh, I was asked to teach a class, and I went in teaching class, and it was over a book, and I remember the first couple weeks, like, okay, you know, I'm going to teach this stuff, and some of this is going to be pretty new for people, and it's going to be stuff that they haven't heard before. And, you know, we start going, and a couple weeks in, I mean, we're moving and grooving. This class is going really well. And I remember one week, I walked in really excited. I was like, let's get this started. And from the back, a young woman raises her hand and she just goes, because of the things I've learned here, I'm not sure if God exists anymore. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure if I ever had a relationship with God. Now, I remember in that moment when that happened to me as a teacher, first year of ministry, I was like, that, that's not in this chapter. I, I, I don't, I, that's, that's next week when someone else is teaching. <laughs> that is the wrestling of doubt. What do you do when you are not on the same page with everyone else? What do you do when you have questions about God? What do you do when you no longer feel God the way that you used to? And what do you do when you're confused about what people say about God? Doubt is an unpleasant condition, but it is not an uncommon condition 
in the Christian faith. As a matter of fact, when Christians got together and they were recording to say, what is the resurrection of Jesus, this process, this story looking like, John gives you a story of doubt, of one person wrestling with, could Jesus truly come back from the grave? And here's how John is going to tell it in John 20. If you haven't turned to it already when Sierra read it, uh, I'd encourage you to turn to the story today. It's in John 20. If you're new to the Bible, it's in kind of the last third. If you see Matthew, Mark, Luke, you'll run into John. And John's going to tell you about one individual who amongst everyone else does not feel the same things that everyone else does. If you want to follow with me, starting in verse 24. Now, Thomas, who was also known as the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Okay? In other words, other people had an experience of God that he did not have. Verse 25. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in the hands, and I put my fingers where those nails were, and I put my hand into his side. I will not, could not, believe. Now, this is the journey, not just of Thomas, but everyone when it comes to faith. At some point, we have to move from second hand to first hand. At some point, you have to work in your life from someone else's belief and what they believe to what do you believe. And in Thomas, we see this transition that is happening here. And when this transition happens, the one thing we need to make sure not to do is panic. There's no need to panic. There was an author by the name of Robert Keegan who came out with a book a couple years ago that he called The Evolving Self. And he basically said, I can describe your life by the premise of this book. Okay. His shot at describing life was, you have mental maps of how you understand and believe things in your life. And he said that usually you go through a cycle of what you believe. And he would describe it with these three terms. There are seasons where you have confirmation, seasons where you have contradiction, and seasons where you have continuity. There are seasons where you are learning what you've learned, and you are saying yes to those things. There are also seasons in life where you find maybe answers that were satisfying or peaceful to you at one point are no longer as satisfying. Or maybe they're more complex than you even knew it to be. And there's questions of that. And then the third is continuity. How do I take what I've seen in life and pairing it with my experience, and now how do I draw to a new conclusion? This is the cycle that he would describe in his book. This is not just life. This is life of faith as well. That we all go through seasons where we affirm what we've learned. We have seasons where we ask questions of the things that we've learned. And then we have seasons where we work through these two things together to say, now where am I on the other side of these new questions that I have with faith? And I would argue that Thomas has run through this exact same thing, right? Like we always use the phrasing all the time of being like, oh, he's just doubting Thomas. Come on, that is just too simplistic, right? Like this man has to have more texture in his life than just like, ooh, he doubted once. You can even see this in his life. John 11, verse 16. This is earlier in John's portrayal of Thomas and Jesus. At one point, Thomas is like, look, we got to go die with this guy. 
He's behind it. We're behind him. Let's go. Okay. And then next, a couple chapters later, you find Thomas saying to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know this way? That's a line of contradiction. And then by the time you get to John 20, you see that Thomas is trying to find continuity. He found Jesus. He's got questions about Jesus. People are saying that Jesus rose from the dead. How do I put these things together? And the invitation for continuity, not just in Thomas's life, but in our lives, when it comes to doubt, is one simple step. We first have to be honest. We have to be honest before God, and we have to be honest towards us. Did you notice, like, Thomas does not pull punches here. He is like, unless I receive A, B, and C, I'm going to write the list for you, okay? If I don't get A, B, and C, I am not sure if I can buy this or believe this. When we are honest with our doubts, when we are honest with our doubts, it helps set the tilling of the soil to prepare to meet God in a new way. We must be honest with it, though. One of my spiritual mentors, when I was in a deep season of doubt and deconstruction about the Christian faith, one of my mentors pressed into me and he said, Zane, God cannot transform the person you are pretending to be. You must be honest with where you are with God. And that is how transformation begins. God can handle your honesty and your questions. Like ancient Christians used to say things like, the more complex something is, the longer it takes to learn and figure out that complexity. We're talking about God here. Okay, that's about as complex as it gets. It takes time and we can be honest with it. And if you're like, I don't know if I can truly be honest with some of the things that I am asking in my life, you do not have to look any further than verse 26. Can Jesus, can God handle your doubts? Here's the next verse of the story. A week later, we're going to come back to that. A week later, his disciples were again in the house. And Thomas, he was with them. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood to them and said, peace be with you. Now, here's the thing that I want you to catch that we run past this story. A week later, okay, God is not working on Amazon Prime time. Thomas has concerns, and apparently Jesus is not concerned about rushing in and answering every question that there is. A couple weeks ago in the Easter passage that we read together and heard that story, it had been several days since Lazarus had been in the tomb, but Jesus knew about it. Why would Jesus not immediately flood in to resolve that answer? As you see here, this is a God who is willing to let us work through are questions that we have with him. And Jesus isn't panicked about that. And we shouldn't be panicked about that either. A week later, and he's still asking the same things. Usually we're the ones that aren't willing to hold the tension, right? Like when we like have a question in life, we tend to run to the digital trinity, right? Like I could go look up like online, I could go look at a podcast or I could YouTube something and I could be able to figure out that answer that's there. But Thomas doesn't just need answers. He needs a presence in the midst of his doubts. 
that come to a different answer than what he thought. And what's beautiful of how Thomas works through this, and this, I mean, this is going to get right in our wheelhouse here. I mean, we could stick in John 20, 26 all day. There's so much in it. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. He didn't buy into or believe this, and he's still around the disciples. I can do even one better, though. If you go to the next verse, although the doors were shut, some translations would say, although some of the doors were locked. Okay, let me translate that. The disciples that Thomas is with hasn't worked out everything about what it means to be a disciple. They still have the doors shut. They haven't worked out everything about Jesus. Mm, This is about to bring a word for us this morning, though. Right? This is why church matters. Church isn't about like if you show up or don't show up, God may strike you down with it. Some of you have already tested that and you know that that's not true. One of the biggest graces about God and the church, though, is that there are times in your life where you struggle with faith and you get around other people of faith for them to proclaim the thing you are struggling with yourself. Some weeks we need the faith of others to help carry us out for faith. The hardest thing, I think, especially in an individualized culture world that we're in, is that you cannot do this thing individually. As much as the world would love to tell you this, as much as Instagram would like to reinforce this for us, you cannot do faith individually. Like, think about it. Like, even at your baptism, where you claimed this faith and said, I'm going to walk down this journey with Jesus, you can't even baptize yourself alone. I mean, I guess you could. You just wouldn't be pulled back up. You need people with you. And people, they're messy. But in the kingdom of God, they are necessary. We work out who God is and God isn't by hanging around other disciples, even when they don't have things figured out, or if they may have some shut doors that you don't have in your life. We need them beside each other. And let me just warn you, like just hanging out with Christians for a while and being a minister, I may be a little biased, but uh, like this is one of the things I notice all the time. Like I sit every week and I hear just really cringeworthy things about God. That sometimes I just sit and I'm just like, oh, I don't know where we got that from. I don't know if that's even in the Bible. Like, I don't know where we were drawing that. And you know the other thing I'm really mindful of? Every week I stand up here and I probably say cringy things about God as well. This is part of the process. Part of the refining of even knowing who God is. Because if you think you can figure out God on your own, you're not worshiping God. You are worshiping your image of who God is. It takes other people around you to help sharpen and to be able to see and for Jesus to come into focus for you today. And notice the first words that Jesus gives when he comes through the doors and stands there. Jesus does not be like, yo, Thomas, why did you not believe what I told you? He doesn't come to Thomas and be like, why are you so reasoning and asking questions? Why don't you just believe? No, the first words of Jesus is peace be with you. This is the grace for all of us to receive into our hearts this morning. No matter what you are questioning, 
No matter what you're doubting, maybe you've struggled with church, maybe you're not sure about some of the claims that Christians have said with God, peace be with you. Easter is the declaration that God is alive and active, which means that Jesus is coming to you. He is going to come again, and through His Spirit, He is also coming to you right now, which is such good news that means this. In your worst doubts, even when you want to give up on Jesus, Jesus is not giving up on you. He is going to keep coming to you. And He's going to bring peace in the midst of the doubts that you wrestle with. And today I would like to close by just giving you three ways that this peace is entering into your life, whether we know it or not, in the midst of our doubts. The first is this, is that we are given peace in silence. Christians have said for a long time before we ever got on the scene, they have said that God's silence does not imply God's absence or inexistence. That Jesus is alive and present, even when Thomas doesn't know if he is or not. A really great example of this is Jesus tells the disciples, like a couple of chapters back, he actually says this in uh, chapter 16, verse 7. He says, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Because unless I go away, the Advocate will not, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, the Spirit will be sent to you. Tell you what, if I had a do-over again, if I had a do-over that moment in the room with a young lady who raised her hand and she said, I'm not sure I feel God anymore. Here's what I would really love to do with that do-over. I would love to say to her that in the moments where you no longer feel God the way that you used to feel God, you are in a prime window in your life to actually encounter God with no bias. That we all come to God with our own ideas or preconceived notions. And one of the ways that God matures us slowly is us coming to God, not on our terms, but coming to God on God's terms. We all have different ideologies or preferences or ways that we think about God that need shaping. And it is a chance in the midst of our doubt for God to come to us in a more pure way than ever before. God comes to us in different ways because it's through different ways we see different sides of God. That is one of the ways God brings peace, even in silence of being like, what are you doing right now, God? The second is this, that there is peace that is brought in waiting. The confession of Easter that we do for weeks and weeks here is the confession of Easter tide that says God is active and alive, which means even if you can't see apparent ways God is working on the surface, God is still working something underneath the surface of your life. There was this writer by the name of Alan Jacobs who wrote this book called The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction. And he said, I think the internet has ruined us. And the first time I heard that, I was like, of course the internet has ruined us. Like, get in line. Like, everyone wants it. Oh, the internet, you know, no, no. He wrote this book, though, that has this fascinating premise. He basically says this, 
Because you have the internet, and most of you have the internet in your pocket or purse right now, you have now lost the art of serendipity learning. And what serendipity learning is, it is just gleaning off of exploring and waiting for questions. So here's the example he gives you, right? In second grade, when you need to do a book report, what did you go do? You went to the library, you looked up those codes, they were super confusing, you're like, I don't know why, is it alphabetical, is it numbers, you're smashing them together. You had to go, you had to find the book, you had to open the book, and you had to read through some of the book to actually find the answers. And you know what happens while you read the book? You started to find answers to questions you weren't even asking. This is the power of waiting. We want instant answers. We want to know right now. And sometimes receiving the answers isn't all there is to this. God wants to form us, not just inform us, that God in this moment is working on us. By serendipitous life. Like I, I was in a conversation a couple weeks ago where I was just sitting with someone that they did policy and I was like, wow, that's really fascinating. And then later in conversation, they were like, you know what? Did you know that on Super Bowl Sunday, people eat 8 million pounds of guacamole? No, no, I didn't know that. How are those two things connected? And he was like, I just found it while I was researching policy. That's serendipitous learning. Okay, I know you struggle with guacamole. All right, so that is like your, that's your piece of God today. Okay, but that's the thing is that over time of looking for answers, we start to find answers to things that we didn't know we were looking for. Jesus isn't panicked about your doubts. So neither should you be. Buckle up and let God form you as you work through those doubts. And the final way that God brings peace is God brings peace in the midst of struggle. The moments where you've had the most maturity has tend to happen in the interruptions and disruptions of life. We don't like it. No one welcomes it. We all despise it. But the most growing moments for you, if I sat you down and I was like, give me the stories that make you the most you, it's going to be those moments of interruption or disruption. And doubt tends to happen in those moments. I don't know what your poison is. I don't know what picks it for you. Doubt will come at some point. For some of us, it's when we hear about suffering or we experience suffering that we never would have imagined. For some of us, it's going to be the hypocrisy of other Christians to say one thing and then act another way. For some of us, it's the wrestling of church and our interactions with people. For some of us, it's corruption of Christians. For some of us, it's contradictions or interpretations of Scripture that maybe aren't wrong but aren't full. No matter what the question, no matter what the wrestling, one of the things I want to gently remind us is that most of the time when we doubt and wrestle, we're not doubting and wrestling with Jesus. We're doubting and wrestling with people's presentations of Jesus. I mean, sitting 10 years in front of like young adults, that's what I spent my earlier career doing. Like I j all I did was I sat in front of young adults and I listened to how they received the gospel, but then they also received the gospel with people's opinions, with people's political agendas, with people's perspective. 
And I used to be really resentful of that. I used to be like, come on, parents. But you know what? Now, after 10 years, I'm kind of like, I'm thankful that parents were just willing to hand the gospel that they received to their kids. And part of that is working it out. Look, all of us, all of us have to do the unwinding of not just the gospel, but people's opinions, attitudes, thoughts, postures, all within it. It's part of receiving the faith, and it's a grace for us to work through together. Do you notice what makes Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God? It is not because Jesus comes and answers all of his questions. It's because he encounters the presence of the living Lord. Like he may have put his finger in there. He may have reached his hand into the side. We don't know. But I have a hunch that a lot of times what we're craving for is encountering God just as much as answers about God. One of the things that I always try to remind myself when I get in a deep doubt cycle is just remind myself, am I pursuing the presence of God just as much as I am pursuing my questions that I have about God. The two stay together hand in hand. This is a faith that is not just a rationalizing of a bunch of theories and saying yes to this, yes to this, yes. Ah, yeah, I can get on board with that. No, no, no. This is a personal relationship with God through Jesus, who Jesus was real. He was here. He breathed. He died. He rose again. That's what's the first importance of our faith. And we can wrestle all within that. Church, my prayer for you this week is that you receive Jesus the way Jesus is already receiving you. I'm going to invite one of our elders to go ahead and come up and bless us. I'm going to pray for us as we do. Uh, So God, I'm always cognizant of us coming uh, to you today. Some of your people, Lord, are tired Uh, Some of your people just have some serious questions uh, about all of this. And others of us, God, we're hungry and thirsty right now for you. God, by your spirit, may you bring about peace into our hearts. No matter what questions we're wrestling through right now, can you bring about your peace? Not that you're going to solve or answer all those things. God, this week, may you give us nudges of your peace as we work through the questions and the doubts and the hesitancies we have about you. It's all in your name, Jesus, that this is possible. Amen.